welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. All right, all right, all right. I hope everyone is doing well. I'm feeling optimistic, although cautiously. I've got an interesting episode for you involving value propositions and online marketplaces. But first, a little rambling. You might be surprised to learn that most of the podcasts I've listened to in the last couple of years were the ones I've produced, either for myself or my clients. And of course, because I have excellent and interesting clients, I've enjoyed those very much. I've recently resumed listening to other podcasts because I'm trying to cut out some of the other content I've been consuming. But I'm always interested in investigating other forms of content. So video, as you know, and now printed magazines and books. I just designed my first printed book and it came in the mail today. I'm going to say it was a highly satisfying experience from start to finish. And I hope there will be more to say about that in the future that might have some relevance for you. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about the idea that every company has some high-value customers whose needs might be different from the majority of their customers, and they might be called the late majority or laggards in crossing the chasm language, and how does a company frame their appeal to them? So my guest is Mark Herbert, the Chief Business Officer at Scientist.com. Mark, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Pleasure to be here today. So for people who might not be familiar, explain the Scientist.com marketplace. So Scientist.com, we are the world's largest marketplace for outsource research services. I think in the simplest layman's terms, we are often thought of as a combination of Amazon and Match.com for the pharmaceutical industry. We were founded in, in 2007, launched our first public marketplace in 2008, and then built our first enterprise marketplace for Pfizer in 2009. Over the past 10 plus years, we've worked integrally with our pharmaceutical clients to help them source projects for almost every stage of their research and within almost every large pharmaceutical company by connecting them directly with contract research organizations. Today, we operate private marketplaces for 24 of the world's top 30 pharmaceutical companies and an emerging group of about 85 plus biotech clients. We're headquartered in San Diego, California, actually just north of San Diego and Solana Beach, but we do have global operations with uh, satellite offices in Boston, um, Massachusetts, Cambridge, England, as well as Japan. So when you say a private marketplace for a pharmaceutical company, is it, is it just them that has maybe a portal where they can post projects and researchers can respond or go into a little bit more detail about the structure. Yeah, and that's a very, we have a public marketplace that houses and contains uh, a network of 3,600 plus suppliers that can support over 4,000 plus service areas. When I speak to the private marketplaces or the enterprise marketplaces, these are client specific. 
where we take our public marketplace infrastructure and configure it to their internal needs and operating procedures. But in, in essence, the public and the, the private marketplaces, the architecture uh, and functionality is equivalent. The only difference is the customization that's done within the private that's aligned with their internal policies. Got it. That helps me understand a lot. People join these marketplaces and they agree to some terms. And that's sort of the, the whole idea is to streamline that process of connecting suppliers and company. What kinds of things does each party agree to and what are you putting in place to make that easy for them? We like to think of our marketplace as a, a source to pay platform. And the functionalities and features within the marketplace are designed to enable researchers to save time, reduce overall costs, and provide access to you know, research innovations and ensure regulatory and internal compliance. Within our marketplace, we have, I, I would say, three big buckets that can highlight the capabilities. One is ease of use. The second is our extensive support. And then the third is data smart security. And we can go into each of those individually. But I think the, the question you're asking is around what we've been in ease of use, which is if you're a client, you can initiate sourcing requests online within minutes. You can immediately communicate with the full network of our suppliers, which I uh, stated is over 3,600 plus and growing at about 30 to 40 suppliers per month. You can receive multiple proposals within a few days. And the nice thing is all the suppliers within our network are pre-qualified and they've gone through and signed pre-established legal and finance agreements. And so everything has been pre-negotiated on behalf of our clients in a standardized fashion. But there is the ability for our clients to customize legal provisions within uh, our marketplace. And we can get into the kind of the, the mechanics and the specifics of that as well. And that is also, I'm, I'm learning this as I go. Would I be wrong in guessing that the private marketplaces one obviously it's private it's attached to a single company looking for suppliers but some of the customization is around those contracts and so on that suppliers would be agreeing to the terms of when they submit a proposal that is correct yeah so all purchases made within a science.com marketplace are governed by legal contracts that are negotiated already within the platform, but they also can be governed by pre-negotiated contracts outside the platform. And here is most customers opt to use the legal contracts established by the marketplace. And these truly do eliminate the need to create a new contract for every purchase. Our marketplace legal contracts range from general service agreements that cover hundreds of, of research services to highly specific agreements that cover something that could pertain to like a human biological sample acquisition, for example. In the research service outsourcing market, there are two competing legal models and scientist.com uses what we call a third-party beneficiary model in which customers have a direct legal connection to suppliers where most other marketplaces use a distributor or subcontractor model in which customers have no direct legal contract to suppliers. And the benefit of our third-party beneficiary legal model is any additional provisions that clients want to put in place or suppliers want to put in place directly between 
themselves, they can do so in a statement of work. And it's very similar to any terms and conditions that would be tied to any contract, whether it's in the pharmaceutical industry or any other vertical. Right. That was that whole thing is what fascinated me when I found out about your model, because having worked as a supplier and been on uh, the other side and worked for companies, <laughs> and anytime there's an agreement to do work together, somebody's got an opinion about how whatever contract you bring to the table needs to be different from what it is, which is as simple as it can be, can still take weeks to hammer yes. out. And I thought, well, how does that work? Because it's just hard for me to imagine all these companies say, yeah, whatever's in there, we're good with. Obviously, they've got people behind it that have thought about it ahead of time, but it sounds like you've managed to convince both sides, like, here's what it is, and it's to your advantage, or you're well protected, whatever it needs to be, here we go. Yeah, and really the consolidated sourcing, legal, and purchasing processes that are contained within our marketplace truly does allow researchers to access services and products as soon as they have a need for them or a finalized study plan in place. And the use of a single marketplace supplier agreement eliminates the need to establish separate master services agreement with you know, any supplier that they choose to outsource services to, which if we do surveys of the industry, on average, it would take about 60 days from a researcher conceptualizing a study plan to identifying an appropriate CRO, to putting an actual legal contract in place to allow them to outsource services to that CRO, to actually issuing a a purchase order to support that work. The industry averages about 60 days and within our platform, we can cut that down to about eight or nine days. And so there's tremendous time and which in time savings, there's also inherent cost savings that our model provides to our clients and as well as our suppliers. And then obviously in the pharma industry, there's a lot of regulatory and compliance items to be handled, which I'm sure are covered in all those agreements, but how do you manage accountability for those? Yeah, so that that's something, thankfully, our clients and suppliers have leaned on us to help provide that nodal point of connectivity between those two parties to ensure regulatory as well as internal compliance. And one of the tools and features we built within our marketplace that truly has been a standard for compliance and, and governance of regulatory and regulated services is called Comply. And Comply was created in a partnership with our pharmaceutical clients and suppliers as well as academic institutions to reduce the friction for both research and suppliers in a way that respects the, the sensitive nature of sourcing regulated services and materials. And so what we do is extensive due diligence on our suppliers, and this can be in the form of written due diligence, such as commercial RFIs or requests for information. These can be general as well as service specific. We've also launched in 2021 on-site supplier pre-assessments. It's called our Verify program, which is an extens extension of our Comply program, which again provides further diligence around our supplier network to ensure that any service that a researcher outsources through our network and marketplace, that supplier network meets the local, national, 
regulatory as well as government requirements for the work that they're supporting on behalf of our clients. And then any researcher within that organization also complies with the internal operating procedures of that client organization around the purchases of those services. And so it's a, a, a match made in heaven where we do the external validation and controls as well as internal validations and controls and we have a full audit trail available to both our clients and suppliers which again helps us provide stickiness within the marketplace and it's an inherent value that any researcher gets by outsourcing services through our platform that's just indirect of the general you know, value that you'd get through using a marketplace so of course i'm interested in as a marketer the marketing aspects of this, which we're going to get to, and just the whole idea of building an online marketplace, which is a relatively new thing for everyone, maybe 20 years or so, and you guys have been around for the last 14. Here's the challenge that we promised to talk about at the top of this, was that there must be organizations on either side, so your clients or suppliers that could certainly benefit from participating in this marketplace, but also think we can do fine with out it how what's the secret to trying to pull those people in so this and i want to put it in the context of any company out there there's always some customer you would love to have but they say i don't need it really can you reframe your value prop or whatever it is to make them go oh i didn't think about that or whatever you're doing yeah and that's a you know, obviously an inherent challenge of ours. And I think it's a challenge of any business that's trying to change the paradigm of something that's existed for 20 to 30 years. And as you're aware, change in the pharmaceutical industry occurs at a very slow cadence and people tend to rely on prior experiences as opposed to embracing, you know, new technologies or new methodologies. And this is why the industry as a whole spends hundreds of millions of dollars on, you know, change management initiatives with the likes of the Deloitte and Accenture to try to understand and predict what would be an appropriate paradigm shift to, you know, catalyze improved efficiencies in, in any aspect of the organization. And we try to focus our value proposition on the direct and indirect savings and, and value that our platform offers to both our suppliers and clients. One thing to note here is the audience that we engage with does vary quite uh, dramatically across our suppliers and clients. And so on, on our client side, for example, we can be interacting primarily with the head of research. We could be interacting with the head of procurement. We could be interacting with the CFO. And as you're aware, each of those has a different agenda that they're attending to and a different perceived value proposition that we would have to you know, present to them to really show them the utility of our, our marketplace within their organization. And the same goes on the supplier side where we could be directly interacting with the head of marketing who has a similar background as yourself or the head of sales or the head of research or even for some of the smaller suppliers, the CEO. And so we, we try to customize our value proposition to the audience. And, and thankfully, we have a lot of different, you know, levers and avenues we can go down. From a, a supplier perspective, the easiest value proposition our marketplace offers is there's no subscription, license, implementation, or transaction fees to join. 
And so the only time you'd be paid or you, it would cost a fee within our, our marketplace is when business is awarded from the marketplace. And by joining our platform as a supplier, you're going to get access and, and visibility and make yourself aware to 24 of the the world's top 30 pharmaceutical organizations and this emerging group of 85 plus biotech clients and why not join a marketplace and, and provide that increased awareness that offers also customer acquisition potential. And so it's a nice, easy, simple value prop. And on the, the client side, it's if you're using your traditional methods of outsourcing services. Yeah, you may have contracts in place and the reduction of legal friction that our standardization of legal contracts provides within our platform may not be immediate value to them. But I think as we've, especially as we progress through the COVID pandemic and post-COVID era and border closures, shelter in place restrictions, company closures due to, you know, localized outbreaks. It's highlighted the need to have really robust supplier diversity on the, the client side. And it highlights the value that our legal structure provides in that context. Because if you do have a supplier shut down and you need to identify a new supplier, you can identify that supplier immediately within our platform. And the way our legal structures is set up, you can immediately start outsourcing services to that supplier and you can avoid this two month lead time that is the industry average to put the contracts in place to support outsourcing those services outside of our platform. As well as if you are going through your current supplier network. Our marketplace offers what every other marketplace offers, which is a way to do competitive sourcing to ensure that you're getting the best price. And most organizations have distinct policies in place, especially around outsourcing of, of custom R&D services, where the organization demands researchers get two to three competitive bids and centralizing it within our marketplace provides a, a more efficient way to engage with those organizations and deal with the follow-up response and head-to-head -head comparisons in an apples-to-apples -apples setting of, you know, proposals for a single study. And I think the, the last thing is the extensive supplier due diligence, especially when you think of biotech clients. They're going to go with the, the trusted suppliers that have the high quality and, and brand recognition across the industry. But on occasion, and those I think those occasions are increasing in, in frequency within the industry, there's going to be a need to find a, a niche service that's not offered by their current CRO of choice, or they're going to have a need to position studies outside their current CRO of choice due to timeline constraints. And when that need arises, having a marketplace to immediately identify those suppliers and, and ensuring that the supplier has gone through extensive diligence so any study that's rendered by that supplier isn't called into question. Our comply and verify modules really do accentuate the value proposition and ensure that the organization is, is meeting their internal regulatory and, and compliance needs. Yeah, I'm thinking all the way back to the beginning of your answer relative to shutdowns and the ability to transport samples, whatever it is, or for even suppliers to go into their labs a year ago. 
Yeah, there was quite a, quite a bit of pressure, and I didn't mean to, to interrupt you there, Chris. The one pressure the pharmaceutical industry was having was they were having this increased trust from a public perspective, which was driving their market caps up. So they had this influx of, of cash. Unfortunately, every clinical asset came to a screeching halt just because of the risk of conducting clinical trials in these clinical settings with you know covid spreading and the the lack of an actual vaccine at that stage and they redirected their efforts to everything covid focused and as you're aware or probably are aware there's a small network of suppliers that could actually support those services and so all of them were scrambling to identify the suppliers that actually could support their COVID initiative research. And so we actually launched the COVID Research Center that brought all the suppliers within our network that had the internal capabilities. We could build out full supply chain capabilities uh, on behalf of our clients to immediately deploy their resources into this urgent you know, pandemic need. And then as the industry started to come back online, there's a need to revitalize their pipeline but there's still these closures, especially border restrictions within Europe. And so a lot of our European pharmaceutical clients rely upon our supplier network to identify localized supplier testing funnels or networks within a given geographical region so they can continue to advance their assets that are driving the value of their organization without having the need to ship samples or materials across borders in the face of the restrictions that were being imposed by the government. Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking back. I'm happy about where we are today. Hope it's better tomorrow. But I think back to a year ago, talking to friends or guests on this podcast about what life was like for them. In a lot of life science companies, it's, well, half of us have nothing to do and the other half is going crazy, right? I think the, the nice thing about COVID is it has shown that if the pharmaceutical industry bands together and has a focused effort on developing a novel therapeutic or vaccine, and there's a, a huge need within the world, they can affect a very aggressive timeline that's never been realized in you know the history of the pharmaceutical industry and so hopefully we can take and and glean from those efforts and apply those to other therapeutic settings and indications and start to shorten the cycle time to bring novel commercial therapeutics in, into the world and we're excited that science.com can serve as a potential nodal point of connectivity for the industry that's driving and catalyzing a lot of the innovation that's required to do so. Yeah, it's certainly, and we've mentioned it a few times on this podcast, been an accelerator and changed the way people think about what's possible. It's changed so many things. Our willingness to sit in front of a computer and record a video <laughs> and to appear on a video no matter you know what how you feel that day, as well as, of course, change how drugs and therapies are developed. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting time, to say the least. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I want to say, yeah, it's, I've had enough interesting for... for <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have had enough interesting. It's very, uh, 2020 contained enough interesting for the, the world for many years. Boring will be the new exciting. Yes. Um, 
Talk about, if you can, what, do you, what are some of the reasons you think some customers, potential clients would be resistant? And, and that could be specific to scientist.com or just broadly, what kinds of things go through people's heads and just say, ah, I don't have time, whatever. Yeah, and I'll have to, you know, probably start off by apologizing if there's any procurement folks that are listening to this podcast. But you know, yeah, yeah. So thankfully, I joined you know, Science.com in in August of 2018, and as you alluded to, we've been in existence for about 14 years. So a lot of the heavy lifting was done prior to me you know, joining the, the company. But when I speak to heavy lifting, the initial focus of the organization was to try to capture the big check spenders within the market. And that's the top pharmaceutical organizations. And you can think of, there's a huge total addressable market out there of 80 billion plus for outsourced custom R&D services. You know, majority of that market is contained within the purse books of the top 30 pharma. And the people that control the money flow from that purse book within big pharma is procurement. And so the biggest challenge for us initially was convincing procurement that our marketplace was going to give them the ability to focus on strategic initiatives and help them eliminate a lot of the day-to-day monotony that them and their teams had to attend to. But I can tell you it was, you know, and again, a Herculean effort by the science.com team to, you know, convince these procurement groups that it wasn't a way for them to obsolete their job within the organization because that was the initial view, which is if we embrace the science.com marketplace and it has all these features and benefits and we can speak to and see the direct and indirect cost savings that the marketplace is, is offering, do we need to have in-person procurement group that sits within Novartis? And I think that there's always a need and, and I think it's just a, a different focus. And so there was a lot of education from our perspective of how our marketplace and, and the features and benefits within our marketplace offered opportunity to them and didn't present a potential exit of their their role or, or their team's role. And so there was a lot of, you know, initial pushback there. I think as we've worked within big pharma and procurement and, and we've learned what their problems are and we've tried to develop solutions within the marketplace to address those problems, it's allowed us to build, you know, much more robust relationships and have key case studies that we can go and, and use as examples as we, you know, onboard some of the additional top 30 pharma clients. Within biotech, that's a slightly different engine. The, our marketplace was built initially, again, for big pharma needs and initially to capture what we call the long tail of services. And so these were the ones that fell outside of the supply agreements that were already in place between the large pharma and these large CROs that were on our network, but 
you know, obviously had pre-existing relationships before we came into existence. As you look at biotech, they don't really have a need for a long tail of suppliers because they're focused on one or two assets. And those assets are in a, a specific therapeutic area. They often have a network of five to 10 CROs that can, you know, satisfy majority of their outsourced needs. And so we've had to build additional features to you know, accentuate the service offering or the value proposition into our biotech clients. And these are expanding our network of suppliers of custom R&D services to also include reagents, consumables, and lab supplies. So you can think the first need that most biotech clients have is to build out the infrastructure as they put their technology or early research through the paces. And so a lot of that is going to still be done in-house. And then as the maturity of that asset grows and they start to get into areas that are regulated in nature, they have a need to outsource. That's when the custom R&D services within our marketplace set in. And so we're trying to capture their full need from you know the, the inception of the organization, the building of the lab, the building of the initial data packages to the outsourcing of custom R&D services once their capabilities become limited in nature and, and they can't supply their own internal requirements, as well as building out fractional procurement or fractional accounting services on behalf of our biotech clients and selling more of a one-stop outsourcing shop, as opposed to just the long tail of supply needs that our big pharma has. And again, it speaks to every client, every supplier, it's a slightly different audience. And depending on that audience and the demands of that audience, we'll, we'll tailor our you know, value proposition to try to make sure that they see the true benefit of embracing our marketplace into their their day-to-day -day operations. Nice. Yeah. So the two uh, takeaways I got there were the, what you just mentioned is tailoring your value prop for different audiences. And that made total sense. I didn't even think of some of those things that you might provide for a biotech client as opposed to a larger one. And then for me and people like me or even an organization thinking about if you're competing with an internal stakeholder, how can you elevate their job? So as opposed to replacing it, which yep. is where the resistance would come from. Let me take that off your hands so you can think about something bigger and provide value that way. And rather than, and who wouldn't jump at the chance to do, oh, you mean I don't have Absolutely. to do this day to day? I can actually think about what my job's really supposed to be? Absolutely. And, and that's our goal is to really make them shift their mindset to see this time savings gives me the opportunity to be more strategic in my day-to-day -day role within my organization. And so that's that's what we try to do. And I think we've done a, a great job. We've grown a, a great market share within the organization and we're continuing to learn from our, our clients and suppliers. One thing I did fail to mention, and I think it, it probably resonates with your background, is one thing that we, we do get pushback on on, on occasion is we have a, a broad network of suppliers, 3,600 plus. And you can imagine, especially some suppliers that have extremely niche service offerings, they don't see a very large volume of requests. And so the nice thing our platform offers is unique marketing opportunities that we can monetize to our suppliers and our suppliers can only access within our marketplace. And the reason I bring this up is you can think of 
if you're going to buy a car, for example, you can go shopping online and you can look at all the models, the bells and whistles and features and customize it. You can see what the overall price is, but the, the, the likelihood of you actually purchasing that car online is low. So what happens is you go into the dealership, even though most people don't like to go into car dealerships because of the runaround you have to go through, but they know once you're in the dealership, you want to buy a car and you're willing to deal with the headache because of the satisfaction of the purchase. You think of a researcher that logs into our marketplace, everything's already set up from a legal financial perspective. So they have a specific research need and they typically have a PO that's waiting in hand once they identify a organization that can support that research need. And so if you could do direct marketing to that researcher as they're typing in their request within the platform, you're capturing that researcher right at the point of sale. And we can offer those type of marketing initiatives to our full supplier base. And so it becomes extremely powerful. And the reason I use the, the car analogy is something that we didn't speak to often, or we actually didn't speak to at all in this call. Our marketplace is different from Amazon. It's different from a, a lot of other marketplaces because we have a extremely high average order value. So our average order value is about $30,000. So it's almost the price of a car. I mean, it's because of the nature of the custom R&D services our clients are offering. But you know, I, I think it, it speaks to if you can offer some cost-effective marketing initiatives that give suppliers this direct point-of-sale marketing uh, focus to researchers, it enables increased customer acquisition quite effectively. And so we've been able to introduce those types of, of marketing opportunities to our supplier base over the last couple of years. And we're extremely excited about the opportunities that those will present in the future as well. Yes. I don't, I don't have any response to that other than my wheels are turning. They haven't gotten anywhere yet, but I'm just imagining people right now who listen to that are thinking about how can I incorporate something like that into what I'm doing? Like, so... Thank you for that. Mark Herbert, this has been really interesting conversation. I learned something as always. And I will, of course, put a link to scientist.com in the show notes. And hopefully people will check it out. My pleasure. And I look forward to hopefully educating some of the, the listeners from our conversation today. And if there's ever any need to learn more about scientist.com, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at our website. And our go-to hashtag is faster science. I think our CEO's mission, Kevin Lustig, and obviously the mission of the, the whole organization is to cure all human disease by 2050. And as you and I know, that's a, a huge statement to make. And we have about 29 years to affect that. But I think some of the efforts that we've seen focused in, in COVID over the last 18 months, hopefully our industry can respond and we can be a part of achieving that mission for the world. And so we, we look forward to a bright future and hopefully science.com can provide that connectivity that the industry needs to really catalyze the innovation and, and drive more therapeutics into commercialization. Nice. I like that big thinking. Thank you once again for joining me. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please tell a couple of your colleagues. I've got more interesting guests lined up. 
One of the topics that will be valuable to everyone is mentoring, including reverse mentoring. So make sure you're subscribed and I will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.